The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. I'm excited to preach again this morning. Uh, I was away for a few weeks, as you know, on vacation, and then last week we did a, a question and answer time, a, a stump the pastor period, and uh, we had a good time working through some of those questions, and uh, thank you for your input uh, on that. As you know, before we went on vacation, we finished our study of Romans chapter 8, and uh, we spent 16 messages in that wonderful chapter, and I understand now why some have called Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, it is, hands down, probably the most incredible chapter that I've ever preached on. I've been preaching for 20 years, and without a doubt, the material in Romans 8 has to be some of the most doctrinally profound, some of the most rich material anywhere in the Scriptures, because it deals with our position in Christ, and it deals with our assurance, and it deals with our security, and it deals with the fact that true believers will persevere to the end. It began with no condemnation, and that chapter ends with no separation. Incredible chapter about the security of the believers. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans 8 for just a moment. We're not going to spend a lot of time there because we did finish the chapter, but I want to just remind you of the end of this chapter because it has implications for what we're going to preach on this morning. Romans 8 verse 28, as you remember, Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We said that that verse doesn't mean that just because you're a Christian, suddenly everything in your life is going to turn out great in every situation. That's not what that verse means. It is a promise that God has a purpose and he has a plan and he is working that plan out in your life and in the life of all believers and verses 29 and 30 tell us what that plan is. If you're curious as to what God is up to, verses 29 and 30 tell us. He wants to conform us to the image of his son. If you're a Christian, God wants more than anything for you to become like Christ. And so, in order for that to happen, to ensure that there would be some of humanity who are actually conformed to the image of Christ, God has, according to verses 29 and 30, foreknown some, predestined them, called them, justified them, and glorified them. That is the, the, the golden chain of redemption. And it spans from eternity past to eternity future. God has, in eternity past, foreknown some, foreloved some, forechosen some. Those he has then predestined. Those he has then in time called. Those he has then justified. And those he has also glorified. And so the remarkable truth in that, those two verses is that if God has set you apart for salvation, you will reach glory. There's none who are lost. There's no attrition. There's none who fall by the wayside. You, you don't lose your salvation. And the end of this chapter has confirmed that for us. The, the crescendo of Romans 8 comes in these final verses. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Verse 35, 
who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This chapter teaches us about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the fact that all who are truly saved will never be lost. The doctrine of eternal security. And this is a truth that is taught all throughout the New Testament. Not just here in Romans 8, but all throughout the New Testament. And so that's where we've been the, the last few weeks. We've looked at these marvelous verses. And as we've come through this chapter, there have been a number of issues that have been raised in my own mind that we didn't deal with in the context of preaching through this eighth chapter of Romans. And so oftentimes in the summertime here at Maranatha, we do kind of a summer series. And so what I would like to do over the next few weeks for a very short summer series is to go back and look at some of those issues that have arisen in my own mind as I've studied this, this chapter. And so what are some of those issues? Well, I am firmly convinced that the Scriptures teach the doctrines of grace. Uh, all five of them are found here in the 8th chapter of Romans. And so in a few weeks, we're going to come back, and I want to show you how Romans 8 convinces me of the doctrines of grace. That's one of the things I want to talk about. The other issue I want to talk about over the next few weeks is raised for us in verse 32, where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. I want to deal with the question of who did Christ die for? Did he die for the sins of all people, or did he die for us? It's a very thorny topic, but I want to tackle it with you over the next couple weeks, and I want to address that issue, and we'll try to navigate some of the difficulties of the extent of the atonement. So that's what's a, a preview of coming attractions. What I want to do this morning, though, I want to follow up from this eighth chapter of Romans, and I want to deal with some of the passages and verses that people would go to to teach the opposite of what we've been teaching in Romans 8. Uh, there are, as you are aware, well aware, the fact that there are a number of Christians who don't believe in the eternal security of the believer. I have friends, you have friends, you have family, as I probably do as well, that um, don't believe that Christians uh, cannot be lost. In other words, they say that there are some passages in scriptures that are clear in teaching the fact that believers can and do lose their salvation. Uh, this, this is common. So whereas all Christians uh, agree essentially on the fact that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Not all Christians agree on whether believers lose their salvation or not. I was preaching in Kazakhstan, teaching in Kazakhstan a number of years ago, this material, and I think I've told you before that I learned in the course of the material that we were teaching that those men didn't believe that. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher and theologian and songwriter, did not believe in the eternal security of the believer. And so, where do they get this notion? They get it from Scripture. They get it from specific passages in the Bible that, that uh, seem to imply that believers can and do lose their salvation. So, I, I want you to understand what those passages are. 
I want you to be able to respond to them and know how to interpret them because there will be some who will go to these passages to state that believers can lose their salvation. Here's why I want to do this. I want to do this for your confidence in the Scriptures. Because if you have certain passages that clearly teach the the eternal security of the believer, but then you have other passages that seem to imply believers lose their salvation, what's at stake here is not just eternal security, but what's at stake is the character of God and the sufficiency of the Word of God. So you have to have some answers for that. You have to be able to respond to those who would be able to bring these texts, and you have to be able to say either, yeah, the Bible does contradict itself, or you have to have some answers. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, and maybe more practically, the question of whether a person can lose their salvation is not an abstract question. That, that's a question you and I have to wrestle through because that matters on a daily basis. Not only our concern for our own perseverance, but that matters for friends and family and people who've, who've grown up and said they're a Christian and even attended church all their life and then something happens where they walk away from the Lord and they don't walk with Him anymore and you have to have an answer for that. What happened there? These are real questions that need real answers. And so this is not some abstract, ethereal issue that academicians deal with in their ivory towers and never descend to the masses. These are real questions that we need to have real answers for. So I want to tackle some of those passages that may imply that believers lose their salvation. But before I do that, let me just state that um, there's no questions that Christians can fall, and they can fall severely. Uh, we're going to deal with the fact that whether Christians can lose their salvation. I think you know where I'm going to land on that issue. But let me just be clear that there are Christians, maybe some of us, who have fallen and fallen hard into sin. I mean, just read about Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon. Or how about Peter? who denied Christ. What happened there? Those, were, those men are all believers. They, they know the Lord. They love the Lord. They walked with the Lord. And so what you have here, though, is true believers falling into sin, and yet in every case, their situation is remedied by their repentance. They've come back to the Lord. They've begun to walk with Him again. So that's not the issue here. That's not what we're talking about. The question, though, is what about those who fall away finally? What about those who, who seem to have walked with the Lord and make a final statement and a final decision to no longer follow the Lord? What happened there? Does the Scripture really teach that believers can lose their salvation? I want to take you to some of those troubling passages this morning. If you're new with us, we, we typically walk just through verse-by-verse verse books of the Bible. This morning, I want to take you kind of in a topical study and just do a little Bible study with you and look at uh, four of those key passages, four of those troubling passages, four of those problematic passages. There are many of them, and we're not going to be able to deal with them all this morning, but I want to deal with four of them this morning. So let's do this. First, would you open your Bibles to John chapter 15? John chapter 15 is one of the most well-known passages where a cursory reading would indicate or seem to imply that a believer loses their salvation or can lose their salvation. Let me read the text, verses 1 to 6. 
These are the words of Christ. He says, I am the true vine, the, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. This is one of the most commonly cited passages that deal with the potential loss of salvation in the life of a believer. And I want you to notice that we have three players here. We have a vine, we have a vine dresser, and we have the branches. Who are these individuals? Well, Jesus tells us very clearly who they are. First, the vine is Jesus. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine. He is the one through whom the, the life flows, the sustenance comes. He is the one who provides life and vitality to anyone. So he calls himself the true vine. He was all that Israel was not. They were supposed to be the vine, but they were not. Secondly, we have this vine dresser. And God tells us through his word in verse 1 that he himself is the vine dresser. Verse 1 says, my father is the vine dresser. So all of you gardeners amidst us, you will appreciate this. You have tended your garden. You have cleaned up the plants. You have pruned them. You have cut the, 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 the dead stuff off to make those plants as fruitful and productive as possible. You've thrown your miracle grow on there and watched those plants flourish. You understand this. That's what God does. He carefully prunes the vine. He carefully cuts off the old branches that are unproductive. This is what God does. He wants it to be fruitful and productive. So Jesus is the vine. God is the vine dresser. The third party that we see here are the branches. And they're told to us in verse 5 that we are the branches. Disciples, people, Christians are the branches. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So here's what we have. We have Christ the vine. We have God the vine dresser. We have Christians who are the branches who are tied into the vine. And the, the whole point of this account is for Jesus to teach us that life and vitality in the Christian life come through him. That if you want to lead a productive, fruitful, God-honoring, God-glorifying, God-exalting life where, where you're trusting Him and you're living in confidence with Christ and the Lord and you're living a victorious Christian life, it's, it's got to be Christ in you, Christ through you. You can't live this way on your own. You can't produce fruit in your own life. You, you can't be able to do anything on your own apart from Christ. And so that's the point of the passage. Here's the issue, though. Many people have come to verse 2, and they say, well, here's a problem. Jesus says in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So here you have this metaphor of a vine and a branches, and the, the Christians, the believers, are those who are tied into the vine. They're the branches. And then he says this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And that little prepositional phrase, in me, is the difficulty here. Who are these people? 
I mean, doesn't this imply that they had been genuine believers? Doesn't this imply that they're tied into the vine? Doesn't this mean that they're, they're connected to Christ? Doesn't it mean they're in union with Christ? Doesn't this mean that these are true Christians who then Christ says when they don't bear fruit, he takes them away? And verse 6 then tells us what happens when he takes them away. It says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Seems pretty clear. True Christians in Christ, not bearing fruit, Christ cuts them off, they're cast away, they lose their salvation. That, that seems to be the interpretation of, of this text on a cursory reading. Is that, the, is that the correct interpretation? It's not. And so let me take you through why I don't believe that's the correct interpretation and why I believe that Christ is referring actually to unbelievers in this instance. I believe what you have in, in mind here, in view here, in verse 2, are only those who are superficially connected to Christ, not tied into the vine. I understand it says, in me, but I believe he's referring here to those who people who profess Christ, but do not truly possess him. Phony Christians, make-believer Christians, false Christians, fickle faith Christians, not Christians in the first place. I'll give you some reasons why I believe that. Here's reason number one. First reason is all true believers bear fruit. All true believers bear fruit. And we can see that from verse 8. Look down in verse 8 where Jesus himself, in the very context, he says this. He says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What is the proof of genuine discipleship? What is the proof that you know Christ? What is the proof that you're one of his children? What is the proof that God has saved you and redeemed you? Jesus himself says the proof of that is fruit, that you bear much fruit. What is fruit? We're not talking, talking apples and bananas and oranges here. We're, we're talking about the fruitfulness of Christ in you, in your life. And so when you're a true Christian, what's going to come out? Love for others, forgiveness to others, conviction over sin, a love for the word, a love for Christ, a love for his church, a love for people, a trust in the Lord in the midst of trials, conviction over sin. All of that is fruit and evidence of the fact that you belong to Christ. So the litmus test of being a true believer is a fruitful life. Isn't that what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of soils? You remember the parable of soils? Some seed falls on the hard soil and it doesn't germinate anything. That's not a believer. And some of that seed falls on the rocky soil and it springs up, but because there's no depth of soil there, it perishes. There's no evidence of fruit there. There's no Christianity there. The, the third type of soil is the kind of soil where the seed falls and it sprouts up and it's choked out eventually by the thorns around it. And that's, that's not a true believer. The only one of those in the story that Jesus tells there that's a true believer is the last one. The one that falls in good soil and produces 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So the, 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 the statement is clear. The, the teaching is clear that true believers produce Fruit. Now, it varies in some believers. Some produce 30, some produce 60, some produce 100. But the issue is all true believers bear fruit. 
So, if you have, then, in this case, a person who's not bearing fruit, you don't have a true believer. That's reason number one. Reason number two is because John's Gospels have already mentioned the fact that there are these kinds of people. John has already described in the book of John, the Gospel of John, the fact that there are such things as superficial believers. There, there are people who attach themselves to Christ in a kind of external fashion. They're attached superficially, but they're not truly connected to the vine of Christ. John chapter 2, he's talked about those who believed in him, but he did not believe in them, meaning they weren't truly followers of him. John chapter 6, he, after teaching about them needing to embrace him and receive him and eat of him, they said, well, there were some who heard of that and were not able to accept that and were not walking with him anymore. So I believe even in the Gospel of John, you have cases of false believers, which would seem to then point to the fact that these are in mind here in John chapter 15. A third reason I would believe that these are not referring to true believers is because if they are cut off, then they are lost eternally. There's no way for them to be true believers because Christ has already stated in the gospel of John that true believers cannot be lost. Let me show you a couple passages. Go back to John chapter 6. I just want to show you a couple of these places. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 37 says this. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, look what he says, verse 39. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. So here he's stating in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me, I won't cast any one of them out. And yet you come to John chapter 15 and he says, there are some who do not bear fruit, those I cast out. So either you have Jesus speaking out of two sides of his mouth, or the people referred to in John chapter 15 are those who do not truly know him. So, putting all those reasons together, I, I believe you have in John chapter 15 a very clear statement of the fact that these people were not true believers. They were not Christians who lost their salvation. They were not Christians who departed and then were eventually lost along the way. No, they were false believers. They were not the real Christians. They were those who were just following Christ because they were impressed by his teachings and impressed by his miracles, and they were enthralled by those things, but they weren't genuinely converted. And so you don't have, in the case of John 15, believers losing their salvation, you have people who were never in Christ in the first place, never truly saved, and therefore fell away. I believe that's the correct interpretation of that passage. And there's many examples of that through, throughout the scriptures, Judas being a classic example of that. He was superficially attached to Christ, one of the twelve, and yet in the end demonstrated the fact that he did not knew the Lord, know the Lord. So, 
That's my understanding of John chapter 15. And I don't believe here you have the case of a true believer losing their salvation. I have, believe you have the case of an unbeliever, someone who never had salvation in the first place, and therefore were cast away. Let me take you to another one. Galatians chapter 5. Go over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And as I read these verses, see if you can pick up the phrase that may have been used by some to prove or attempt to prove that believers can lose their salvation. Galatians 5, starting in verse 1, he says, It was for freedom that Christ has set you free, set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Again, there would be some who would go to this text here and, and they would say it's pretty obvious from verse 4 that it's possible to have been severed from Christ and then to have fallen from grace. So the assumption is that in this case you have people who were once Christians who are in Christ, who have now been severed from Christ, and they've fallen away from the grace that has saved them, and therefore they are Christians who have lost their salvation. Is that what this text means? Is that a proper understanding of Galatians chapter 5? And I would say to you, I, I don't believe it is. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here in this text. Um, I believe what Paul is talking about are those who have embarked upon the following of Christ and the system of grace that he offered and then left that means of salvation to pursue a works-oriented system of salvation. I believe that's what he's referring to. And that makes sense with the context. So just remember what's taking place in the book of Galatians. Paul has gone to that area. He has preached the gospel. The word of God has gone forth. The true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He has gone and he has preached that message. That message has been communicated out to the, the regions of Galatia. People came to truly know Christ. And then there were some people who were interested in that who were also attracted to the church initially. And so what you had in the church were true believers, those who had been truly transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you had Jewish unbelievers who were called Judaizers. And the Judaizers were a group of people within the Galatian church who claimed that faith in Christ was a good thing, but you needed also to add the Mosaic law to that to actually become saved. That was the message of the Judaizers. Um, faith in Christ is good, but you truly, in order to secure your salvation, you have to abide by the law of Moses as contained in the Old Covenant. And the core of that would have been circumcision. So these Judaizers were, uh, have, had abandoned the teaching of justification by faith, 
and uh, they had then adopted the preaching that said, you need to go back and you need to revisit the Mosaic Law, and you need to follow those requirements to be saved, and the crux of that was circumcision. That's what Paul's dealing with in these churches. And you remember you heard, you heard about it. He got wind of the fact that this was being circulated in the Galatian churches. Now go back to chapter 1. Because do you remember how Paul typically writes his letters? Remember how he begins? To the dear saints at so-and-so, grace and peace to you. I love you. I care for you. I'm so thankful for you. You're, you're, you're walking with the Lord. I hear great reports. That's how he typically begins his letters. Not here. Galatians chapter 1, he does say grace and peace to you from God our Father who gave himself. But then watch this, verse 6. He goes right to the issue. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. That doesn't sound very friendly. It's not. Because he's upset. The gospel is being abused in Galatia. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. In other words, you're hearing something else than I preached to you. They're saying that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. Only there are some Judaizers who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And as we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Paul's livid with some righteous indignation. I preach to you the true gospel. I preach to you the gospel that would bring about life. I preach to you the gospel that would lead you to heaven. And now you're listening to the false teaching of these Judaizers who are preaching a different gospel, and that is a damning heresy. That's what he's dealing with. So go back to Galatians 5. That's the context. He doesn't want these dear people in Galatia to be seduced by false teaching, and so he reminds them, listen, verse 1 of Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He says, you used to be under the curse of the law. You used to be under the condemnation of the law. You used to be under the yoke and the slavery of that law which condemned you, but you're not under that anymore. You're in Christ who's freed you from the condemnation of the law. And you want to go back to that? You want to put that yoke of slavery back on you? No, don't do that. Verse 2, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He says, if you go back, and if you, you go all the way and you get circumcised, the, kind of the heartbeat of the old covenant, the sign that you were a Jew, he says, if you go back there and you do that, look what he says, Christ will be of no benefit from you. You've cut yourself off from Christ. All the benefits, all the joys, all the blessings that come through the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do that, you have essentially made Christ of no benefit to you. Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So he says, okay, here's the deal. You can either come to Christ and be saved and be uh, granted the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the means by which you can stand before the Lord in heaven based on a righteousness credited to your account through Christ and all the perfections of him given to you, or if you're not going to do that and you're going to go back to the law and all the Mosaic legislation and all the requirements and all the commands and everything that's required of there of you there, then you better keep it all to a T. 
what he says. Verse 3, you better keep all of it. You're under obligation to keep the whole law. And so now do you understand verse 4? He says if you do that, verse 4, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You see what he's saying? If you go back and you adopt the Mosaic law as the means for your salvation and you exchange grace-based salvation for works-oriented salvation, you have essentially cut yourself off from Christ and you have fallen from grace, meaning the system of grace that brings you to Christ. And if you do that, essentially he's saying, you prove yourself not to be a true Christian. That's the issue. So he's not referring here to true believers who have done something that caused themselves to be severed from Christ and fall from grace. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, there's nothing in Scripture that talks about believers ever being unjustified, right? You're never going to be unjustified if you're a true believer. What he is talking about, the person who refuses to trust Christ alone, the person who refuses to embrace the, the salvation that comes through grace, that person has come to the very doorway of grace, they've seen what it is, they've fallen away, and they say, I'd rather go back to my works-based system. And the person who's done that shows and demonstrates the fact that they never truly were saved and they have lost all prospects of salvation because of their willingness to turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a believer who loses their salvation. It's an unbeliever who never had it in the first place and turned their back on the offer of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people do that today. Many people, you offer them the Lord Jesus Christ, and instead they say, no thanks, I'm a good person that's essentially what they're saying. And a person who does that was never saved in the first place. They've embraced a works-based salvation and have shown by their departure from Christ that they never belong to him. Does that make sense? Let me take you to another one. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. I read a number of commentaries and articles this week on this. There are people on both sides of the camp here, whether this is referring to believers and unbelievers or unbelievers, but I believe it's fairly clear what's being referred to here. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Say this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. You can see again what phrase most likely causes people to think that believers can lose their salvation. This is found in verse 6. It refers to those who have then fallen away. He says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And so some have looked at this language and they say that the language here seems to speak of a believer. If you look in verse 4, the been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift. 
been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That kind of language makes many people believe that the writer of Hebrews is referring here to true believers who then fall away, then in that case it says they're impossible to renew them to repentance again. Now you have a problem. If you're going to take that position, then you have to say, as the writer of Hebrews says, that a person in that case, once that happens, can never be saved again. That's what the text says. Most people don't want to say that. Most people who want to believe that you can lose your salvation believe that you can then regain it again later at some point, but that's not what this text says. This text says if you lose it, it's lost forever. So that's one issue. The other issue, and the more important issue here, is this. Are these people, referred to in Hebrews chapter 4, or 6, verse 4, are they Christians? Are they believers? As I said, a number of people have taken that position because they see the terminology here, enlightened, tasted of Christ's heavenly gift, partaken of the Holy Spirit, tasted the word of God, tasted the powers of the age to come, and they've assumed that these are references to Christians. I don't believe that's the case. Here's why. Nowhere in Scripture are those terms used to refer to believers. No, nowhere in Scripture is it said that we have tasted of things. Uh, that, that's not terminology reminiscent of true believers. And added to that is the fact that the terminology that is typically used to refer to believers, like being born again, or being righteous, or being holy, or being saints, none of that terminology is used here at all. So how is it possible then that they can said to have been enlightened and tasted and partaken? Here's what I think he means. I think he's referring to the fact, in the case of those who have been enlightened, they, ha they have an intellectual perception of the truth. They have some sort of academic, external understanding of biblical things, but it simply says that's where it stops. They, they've been enlightened in that. They're, they're mentally aware of some of the truths surrounding the true gospel, but being enlightened is not the same thing as accepting it and embracing it and receiving it and trusting it as truth. What about in the case of those who have tasted Christ's heavenly gift? Notice it says they've tasted it. They've, they've, they've sampled it. You ever tasted something or sampled something where you say, ugh, uh, that's really bad. I don't, want, I don't want any more of that. You didn't take it in. That, that's the idea here. They've tasted of it. They've maybe sampled a little bit of the truth. They've sampled a little bit of Christianity. They've sampled the gospel. They've, they've kind of put their testers out and their antenna out, and they've gotten a sense of, of what it's like. They've tasted it, but they've not embraced it. How about the next one? They've partaken of the Holy Spirit. I think you have the same issue here. They've tasted of the Holy Spirit. They've been around believers. They've been perhaps in the church. They, they've been around people who, who know the Lord. They've been around the truth of the word of God being preached. They've seen the fellowship of the saints. They've, they've kind of rubbed shoulders with fellow believers. So in that sense, they're, they're partakers of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. None of that terminology is used. They've, they've simply kind of sampled it and tasted and partaken of it. 
Same thing with the word of God, verse 5. They've tasted of it. Same thing with the powers of the age to come. They've, they've tasted of that. But they've not embraced it. They've not committed themselves to it. They, they've not adopted it into their life. It's not transforming them. It's, it's simply an external affirmation of a few things, stopping short of truly embracing the truth in a saving way. It'd be like the difference between dating and marriage. You're stopping short of the commitment in dating. You're, you've not made the full commitment. And that's the case here. And so the warning, verse 6, then is making sense. If that happens, if you've got people in that situation where they've simply been around believers and they've been around the church and they're sampling and they're tasting and they've been enlightened and they've been rubbing shoulders, if they then don't embrace Christ and the true gospel at the, that point and if they fall away, it's impossible, verse 6 says, to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. So the issue here is not believers losing their salvation. The issue is unbelievers losing the future opportunity for salvation. That's what's at stake. And so if someone has gotten to that point where they've been so aware of the truth and the gospel, they've received full knowledge of these things, and they've come up right up to the door, and they fall away and they back away from that, and they say, I don't want that, the writer of Hebrews says there's nothing more they can do that can be done for them. Because they crucify, verse 6, to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. They essentially put Christ back on the cross and they say, that's not sufficient, I don't want that. They essentially re-crucify Christ and by doing that, you've essentially demonstrated the fact that you've rejected him and if you've rejected Christ, there is no hope for your salvation. So, I, I believe... The writer of Hebrews here is very clear. These are not believers who have lost their salvation. They are unbelievers who have gotten close to the door of salvation, seen it, turned away, walked away, said, I don't want that, and by doing so have demonstrated the fact that they were never saved in the first place. One more, and we'll close with this. Unless you want me to keep going, there's about 62 more. <laughs> Number four, 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 to 19. Go to 1 Timothy, I guess go back a few pages to the, to the left. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good faith, keeping uh, fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and sh suffered shipwreck in the regard to their faith. You can see where some would point to this passage and say, well, uh, they have suffered shipwrecked, a shipwreck because of their rejection. Something's happened to their faith. They had a faith which has now been shipwrecked and they have lost their salvation. Is that what Paul is talking about? I don't believe so. And then he goes on to list who some of those are. Verse 20, uh, he says, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. 
So are these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are they men who had salvation and then departed and have lost their salvation, or were these men who were never believers in the first place? And I believe it's the latter. And the reason I believe that is because Paul is writing to Timothy to address the false teachers that were battling against the church in Ephesus. Just look up a couple of verses. Look up at verses 3 and 4. Look what the, the very first thing on the heart and the mind of Paul is as he's writing Timothy. He says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. There were some in Ephesus, false teachers, who were threatening the health of that church by teaching strange doctrines. And Paul says to Timothy, don't you be like that. You fight the fight. You keep the faith. You keep a good conscience. You stay the course. You be faithful. You preach the word. You shepherd the church. You preach Christ. You care for the flock. You lead a life of integrity. In contrast to these false teachers, which have done the opposite, and by having done that, have rejected the truth, and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And that word, their faith, refers to objective truth. They've rejected objective truth and therefore have demonstrated the fact that, in essence, they are apostates. So I believe, again, here in this case, you do not have true believers whose genuine faith was shipwrecked and lost, I believe you have the very opposite. You have men who were not believers in the first place, who never had true saving faith, and were not able to manifest the life of Christ-likeness. So, those are four. As I said, there are many more passages. Uh, There are others that we could talk about, but I wanted to take this morning the top four passages, passages that you may hear used as support for those who would prove that salvation can be lost by true believers. Go over to 1 John 2, verse 9, and we close with this. I I believe what you have in the case of those who depart. I'm not talking about believers who fall away for a time, believers who fall into sin for a time. I'm not talking about that. As I said, believers can genuinely do that. But in the case of someone who departs from Christ, who maybe even gets to the point where they reject Christ, we cannot say that they were true believers who lost their salvation. What you essentially have is described for us in 1 John 2 verse 19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. Here's this, watch. So that it would be shown that they all are not of us. If you have friends and family in your life who you believe at one point in their life made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that they began walking down a road of Christianity, there's only two options. If they have departed and they don't embrace Christ anymore and their life does not manifest the fruit of being a believer, only two options are true. Either they are a disobedient believer whom God will discipline according to Hebrews chapter 12. And if that doesn't happen, 
then the only other conclusion is not that they were a believer who lost their salvation, but they never knew Christ in the first place. I know this is weighty stuff, but let me end on the flip side. The flip side is this. If you're a believer, you're kept. You're preserved. You are safe. You are protected. You're going to make it to eternity. You will persevere. You will see Christ. You will stand in his glory. You will see him face to face. Not because of the strength of your faith, but because there's nothing that will separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. Lord, when rightly divided, when rightly understood, when rightly interpreted, when correctly cut straight, your word does not contradict itself. It is trustworthy, it is reliable, it is dependable, it is faithful, it is clear, it is accurate, it is perspicuous. And Father, we thank you so much for the clear teaching of Scripture. We know that these are hard things to wrestle through and some of it, sometimes it's difficult to, to dig in and deal with the meat of passages, but, but God, we thank you for the clarity of your word that nowhere in Scripture do we ever see a true believer being lost. God, you promise to keep us. You promise, promise to preserve us. You promise in John 10 that no one will snatch us out of the hand of your son and no one will snatch us out of your hand. And so we praise you for the reassurance this brings and the confidence and the hope that that brings us. We're grateful. And Lord, we praise you for these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.